Well, as I said, this morning we're coming to the book of Lamentations, and in our English Bibles, that follows right after uh, Jeremiah and before Ezekiel. As we begin with some introductory materials this morning, let me just set the stage for uh, the book of Lamentations. It is clearly a book that addresses the uh, condition of the city Jerusalem and the people of God in Judah uh, after they have been deported, after they have been devastated by conquest. And so uh, the setting is goes back as far as 722 BC when Israel was conquered and deported by Assyria. And then in 605, or excuse me, 609 BC, uh, Babylon rises to power and uh, conquers uh, the or conquers the Assyrians. Then in 605 BC, Josiah comes along and he's got this reformation uh, that he engages in, and that's the time which Jeremiah began his ministry was during the reign of Josiah. Then from 605 to 597, well, actually 605 was the death of Josiah because that's when he went out to fight against the Egyptians and was killed. Uh, and so Jehoiakim takes his place, 605 to 597, and he is a defiant despot, as, I, as I've called him here. He is he's the one who uh, took the scroll that was written uh, by Baruch to take Jeremiah's prophets, and he cut it in half and burned it. And then that led ultimately to 597, where he had deportation of the Judah, the Israelites in Judah, to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. They put a vacillating vassal in place named Zedekiah, and his reign was one of just back and forth and back and forth until such a time as he actually then was put under siege by Babylon and was conquered. Uh, Christopher Wright says the siege lasted for 18 months during which all the worst effects of siege warfare ensued. The ending of food supplies, starvation, death, and disease. Finally, in 587 BC, the Babylonians broke through Jerusalem's wall and invaded the city. And this is described for us in uh, Jeremiah chapter 52. Now, there were some remaining survivors. They, took, uh, they had some turmoil and eventually took Jeremiah uh, down to Egypt, where uh, he prophesied against them and uh, called upon them to uh, repent but, and told them that they, too, would be judged. They would not escape the judgment of God. Eventually, then, uh, the Babylonians would come through and wipe out systematically the entirety uh, of Jerusalem. The temple would be burned to the ground, and uh, there would be just left nothing but devastation. Christopher Wright, in trying to capture this in his commentary on Lamentations, uh, did a very good job of capturing just the, the feeling of what was, had taken place. He wrote this. This was unquestionably the most traumatic moment in the whole history of the Old Testament. Not only was there massive human suffering at every level of physical and emotional experience, not only the devastating demolition and incineration of their ancient and beautiful city, there was also utter humiliation of national pride as a small but independent nation that had a history in the land stretching back to Joshua. And along with that went the devastating undermining of all that they had thought was theologically guaranteed. The Davidic monarchy, the city of Zion, and the very temple of their omnipotent God. And then he puts this in parentheses, or was he? All gone. What possible future could there be? And how could the present even be endured? It is out of that unspeakable pain that Lamentations speaks, daring to describe the indescribable and to utter the unutterable and to do so in poetry of astonishing beauty and intricacy, though soaked in tears." I think Christopher Wright has captured uh, very helpfully the, an introduction setting uh, of this particular book. 
Now we come to the book. I've asked the question of all the Old Testament books. Who is the author? We come to that again. Ultimately, the author is unknown. Uh, it's an anonymous book. There are very good reasons, though, for believing it was Jer- written by Jeremiah. Uh, clearly, uh, in the Septuagint, in the late 2nd century, the book was opened with these words, and it came to pass, after Israel had gone into captivity and Jerusalem was laid waste, Jeremiah sat weeping and composed this lament, this lament over Jerusalem and said, and so the Septuagint said that it was uh, written by Jeremiah, and then in the Septuagint, the book of Lamentations is placed right after Jeremiah. So it's not in the Hebrew scriptures. It is in the, the Septuagint version. And that comes over into our English version. There are many similarities uh, in argument and in style and in the life experiences that are described in Lamentations to that which is true of Jeremiah, the book Jeremiah. There is uh, this forlorn Uh, hope that uh, is described here that's also described by Jeremiah. The poet uh, personified the people uh, speaking out of of thoughts of this terrible siege that that was ongoing. Jeremiah was there when the siege took place. Jeremiah had access to people who would have seen things, heard things, both Babylonian and uh, Jewish Jeremiah has in his uh, prophecy lamentations, sections where he laments very similarly to what we see here. Some people have asked, well, how could, Nehemiah, how could Jeremiah have, have prophesied a new covenant under a messianic rule of, of a Davidic king and yet fall into such sorrow as we see described here? I would just say, just live a few more years and you'll know why and you'll know how. That no matter how much you know comfort and joy, when circumstances hit, especially as tragic as this one, there is this emotional swing that one faces. Again, uh, Christopher Wright says in his summary, in my opinion, the view that Lamentations consists of a miscellany of laments by different authors over an indeterminate time span is very convincingly and decisively outweighed by the view that the book is an intricate composition by a single mind working out a profound and battle-scarred theology in the midst of appalling suffering, yet doing so in poetry of remarkable verbal power Dramatic dialogue and structural skill. Now, he doesn't go far, so far as to say that that, therefore, is Jeremiah, but you put that together with all the things that sound like Jeremiah and, and look like Jeremiah, and in my estimation, Jeremiah is the most likely candidate as the author for this particular book. So then we have the structure. Uh, you may be aware of this, but it is uh, entirely in poetry. Uh, there's no uh, prose found in, in the text. And the poetry comes in the form of laments or dirges. Now, a lament is, is defined in various ways. Uh, I've chosen one definition. They are songs that appeal to God in the midst of suffering, persecution, or inexplicable violence with a sense of protest and sometimes with hope, and most often with renewed praise. An appeal to God in the midst of suffering, persecution, and inexplicable violence, with a sense of protest, sometimes with hope, and almost always with a renewed sense of praise. Or they are dirges, as one man put it, chapters 1, 2, and 4, he says are dirges, and then 3 and 5 are these complaints or songs of personal or collective sorrow. But they're clearly laments. Within this book, we have graphic metaphors. We'll see some of them as we work through. Uh, In chapter 1, we have the daughter of Zion, who is described as a a widow, Wright describes her or names her Lady Zion. 
another writer, which I, I follow him, said she called her Widow Zion. And they used to call somebody that was a widow, Widow so-and-so, Widow Smith. And this is, in this case, it was, uh, it's Widow Zion. And she is the one who is seen in chapter 1. There's a consuming fire that's described in chapter 2. There are chains, blocked up paths, bears, lions, uh, arrows in chapter 3. In chapter 4, tarnished gold and again, fire. So we have these graphic metaphors that are part of Hebrew poetry. The book is made up of basically dialogues throughout the book. There is uh, the, the two voices that are heard. We hear the voice of Zion. We're going to hear the people, as it were, personified. Here's what they're saying now that they see that God's word is true. And how are they describing their situation? And then we have the other voice, who is the poet, or Jeremiah, the man, the prophet. So five chapters, five poems, graphic imagery to describe this painful circumstance. They follow along, the first four chapters are all acrostics, following the Hebrew alphabet. That's why there's 22 verses. Uh, There's 66 verses in chapter 3, which kind of gives it the impression that it's actually longer, but actually, in, ch- in fact, they're all exactly the same length because chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 have uh, three lines per letter. So one letter and then three lines for that, that verse. And then, but in chapter, uh, in chapter 3, he uses the first letter three times, like in Psalm 119 where he does it eight times per letter. So this is the structure, and uh, as one man put it, and I'll have other things to say about this, but it's the A to Z in the expression of sorrow and lament. Now the purposes, I just want to highlight the first two purposes uh, that you have there in your notes, and I'll come back to the third and fourth purposes at the end. But the purpose, this, this book, place in, in, the, in the canonical structure, there, as it's found in the scriptures. In the Hebrew canon, that is in the Hebrew Bible, it's found in scriptures, it's found with Ruth and Esther and the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And along with those books, it is used to, on commemorative days. And Lamentations was used by the Jewish people and was read on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av, or Ab, in July or August, to remember the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 587 BC, and then again to remember the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then in modern times to also remember many terrible times of persecution of Jewish of the Jewish people, culminating even in the Holocaust. In Jeremiah's book, it follows on after Jeremiah to give us something of a continuation of, okay, here's what the prophecy was, here's how the book ends with the great uh, uh, captivity, and now what does that leave, where does that leave Jeremiah? Where does that leave uh, the people of God? And so that's what it, the canonical purpose or its purpose in the scriptures. The historical purpose is that it is a graphic, poetic description of the consequences of Judah's apostasy. The connection between the history of Israel, it also acts as a connection between the history books, uh, Kings, and the end of Jeremiah, and the post-exilic history books, Ezra, Nehemiah. And it also then connects the words of the prophets, both in the times of the kings, the former prophets, and the, the written prophets, the, the, the latter prophets, and it ties their words together in different ways, in, and again, leading to this post-exilic uh, experience. Well, let's then jump down to a survey then of this book. Again, we'll come back, Lord willing, uh, to the doctrinal and ethical purposes uh, at the end once we've seen the book. So if you look uh, on, on the, the, the back of your sheet, you'll see uh, a general outline. Let me just give you the five main points uh, in my outline. And the five main points uh, in this book are one for each chapter, so it's easy to remember. The first is the anguish of Zion's fall, a mourning widow. That is a widow who is in mourning. Second, the enemy behind Zion's fall, a consuming fire, Third, the remnant and Zion's fall, an afflicted man. 
for the depravity in Zion's fall, a trashed treasure. And then fifth, the lamentation of fallen Zion, a contrite complaint. Now you have slightly different uh, wording in your, in your outline. That's uh, where it ended up when I got all of my uh, outline completed. So now... Let's, let's look at this outline and follow these points through. Just So again, open up your, your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 1, and let's make our way through these five chapters and just see how this poetry unfolds. The first thing we have is the anguish of Zion's fall, a mourning widow. And both case, in each case, uh, under each point, I'm going to quote from uh, Richard Brooks, and from Albert Barnes uh, that gave summaries of each chapter in a very helpful way, slightly different, and then we'll work our way through the chapter. In uh, Richard Brooks' commentary, the Welland series commentary, Great is Your Faithfulness, an excellent commentary, devotional commentary on the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is viewed weeping and bewailing her desolate and forsaken condition. Sin is acknowledged as the cause of all her miseries. The Lord's righteousness is proclaimed and there is a plea that her enemies should be punished. Albert Barnes summarizes it this way, In the first of these poems, the prophet dwells upon the miseries of hunger, of death in battle, of the profanation and plundering of the sanctuary, and of impending exile, oppressed by which the city sits solitary. So let's look at the anguished Zion's, the anguish of Zion's fall. In verses 1 through 11, we have the widow Zion's devastation. Now, what's very interesting, and one of the things that you need to note, or you can note as you, as you read through uh, Lamentations, is, is the pronouns. And in this first chapter, in the first 11 verses, the pronouns are all first-person feminine pronouns. And so you have she and her, widow, princess, in terms of the nouns that are used, daughter in Jeru- of Jerusalem. So her, it's all about her and what she has suffered. Now notice with me very fir- in the very first verse that she, that is Zion, let's just read that first verse, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, she has become a widow. And so Zion is pictured as a widow here and suffering then the grief and anguish of widowhood. But it's actually a city. Now, if we just scan through these 11 verses, just listen to the kinds of things that, that Zion recognizes or is, as, as the, excuse me, the writer recognizes has happened to Zion, to this mourning widow. She is lonely. She is a city that is lonely. She's become a forced laborer where once she was a princess. She weeps bitterly, verse 2. There is none to comfort, verse 2. Her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Verse 3, she is in exile under affliction. She is under harsh servitude. She has found no rest. Her pursuers have overtaken her. She's in the midst of distress. In verse 4, there is mourning. No one is there for the appointed feast. All that they had as a structure for their religious and corporate life has been disrupted and obliterated. There is, dis- there is, the gates are desolate, the priests are groaning, the virgins are afflicted. There is grief everywhere. The, cap- the captives are in, in ad- excuse me, they've been taken captive by an adversary, verse 5. What was once majestic has been, has departed. All their princes have fled without strength, verse 6. There is affliction and homelessness in Jerusalem, or Jerusalem itself is. It has become an unclean thing. There's groaning, there's turning away, there's uncleanness, there's falling, fallen astonishingly, no comforter, my affliction, verse 9. Nations have entered the sanctuary, they've entered the congregation. The people groan, seeking bread. It's, it's, it's a graphic picture of, of the hurricane, as it were, effects or tornado effects of the, of the conquest that has happened. 
and what's left is nothing but sticks. And I hope that we can read these, these things and, and, in a sense, put ourselves in their place. It, it, a sense, it should bring tears to your eyes. And the more often I read this chapter, the more, the more it began to, to, to dawn on me, and I began to feel something of the devastation that Zion faced. The widow Zion is, is devastated. But then in verses 12 to 16, the widow Zion uh, laments. And so we have a description of, of her now speaking about what her circumstances are like. And it's, it's, the people aren't actually saying this. This is the prophet saying, I'm putting words into their mouth as they now recognize what's happened to them. And so they begin to look to Jehovah and say, See, verse 11b, See, O Jehovah, and look, for I am despised. Is it nothing to all who, you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which ha- was severely dealt out to us, which Jehovah inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. They go on to describe the, the pain and anguish of the difficulty uh, that, they're, that they're facing because of their transgressions. Notice verse 14. The yoke of my transgressions is bound. This has come upon me. This weight is because of our transgressions, our violating of God's law. Everything has been rejected. There is nothing to do but weep. Notice verse 16. For these things I weep, Zion says. My eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Now, in verse 17, we have the widow Zion's desperation. She stretches out her hands, as it were, for help to those who've been around before, to those whom she's given herself to in the past, maybe thinking of Egypt or one of the other nations. But the fact of the matter is, there is no one to comfort her. Here is insult added to injury. Instead, they're actually mocking her and they're actually still against her. But the chapter ends with kind of a, 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 a different note to it, a different flavor to it in verses 18 to 22, where the widow Zion's vindication of Jehovah is found. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 18. Jehovah is righteous. Righteous in what way? For I have rebelled, this is the widow Zion speaking, I have rebelled against his command. Verse 20, again, I have been rebellious. So in the, in the street, the sword slays, in the house is like death. And so here's a, here's a real confession. And, and God is vindicated in Zion's response here, vindicated by the confession that Jehovah is righteous in what he has done to us. In his dealings with Zion, in verses 18 to 20, he has been righteous. But there's another vindication of Zion's, or excuse me, of Jehovah's righteousness. In verses 20 and 21, now they turn to him in prayer, speaking about those around them. They have heard that I groan. There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my calamity. They are glad that you have done this. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed, that they may be... Come like me. There's this little note of faith here. That Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel had all prophesied that a day of judgment would come upon the nations. And right here at the end, seeing that God has brought his judgment on the people of Judah, they're now, as it were, that that prayer put into their lips. Now, vindicate your righteousness by dealing with the nations as well. Bring their wickedness. And so Jehovah's righteousness is therefore, he's therefore called upon in righteousness to deal with the nations. That brings us to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have a a rehearsal again of some of the same uh, things that we saw in chapter 1, but the emphasis is very different. The emphasis is not upon she and her so much, though it does speak quite frequently here of the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Judah, the daughter of, of my people. And even the daughters of, or the daughter of Jerusalem. So it does speak of this reality of uh, daughters and such. But the fact is here, 
the primary focus of this chapter is on Jehovah. And so notice how often his name comes up in the first ten verses. He is the Lord, verse 1, the Lord, that's the word Adonai, that's not the word for uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, verse 5, but then notice in verse 6, the change, Jehovah has caused to be, has caused to be forgotten, Jehovah has rejected, Jehovah, as in the day of the appointed feast, Jehovah determined to destroy, there is no vision from Jehovah, verse 9, and so it's Jehovah who's actually acting here. And so chapter 2 is really emphasizing the enemy behind Zion's fall. And the enemy is pictured as this consuming fire. Notice verse 3. In fierce anger, he, that is the Lord, Jehovah, in, verse, in fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel, And here Israel being used for the whole of God's people, not just the northern kingdom. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming round about. This chapter is about what happens when God's anger is fully expressed. In verse 1, They are covered with a cloud in his anger. The judgment is called the day of his anger. In verse 2, it speaks of him acting in his wrath. In verse 3, it's a fierce anger. And in verse 4, it's he has poured out his wrath like fire. In verse 6, it ends with in the indignation of his anger. And twice toward the end, of, in the end of the chapter, 21 and 22, it speaks of the day of your anger. Various words are used, different Hebrew words. It's not so much important for us to understand the differences. It's just every word possible to describe God pouring out his anger upon his people. Richard Brooks says the reasons for the Lord's anger with his people are set forth with a full picture of all that he has done to them. There comes a recognition that only the hand that has wounded them can make them whole again. Or Albert Barnes says in the second, in this second chapter, this second poem, these same sufferings are described with more intense force and in closer connection with the national sins which had caused them and which had been aggravated by the faithlessness of the, or excuse me, the faithfulness of the prophets or faithlessness of the false prophets. But here the, 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 the focus is upon God's acting. And notice just how many different words. Just listen to all the different words that describe God's activity here against his people. He has covered them. He cast from heaven on earth the glory of, cast down from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. He swallowed them up. He has not spared all that, the inhabitants. He has thrown down. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom. He has cut off all of their strength. He has drawn back his his right hand from before the enemy to let it go forth. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has slain all that were his pleasure. He has become like an enemy, verse 5, swallowed them up, swallowed up all its palaces, destroyed their strongholds, left them mourning and moaning. He has violently treated them. He has destroyed them. He has forgotten the appointed feast. He has rejected them. He has abandoned them. He has delivered them into their hands. He has destroyed them. He has restrained His hand, he has not restrained his hand from destroying, he is destroyed and broken. He is the king, the law, the prophets, the elders, they're all gone. So it's not just Babylon that gets the credit for what took place here. As a matter of fact, it's not Babylon at all, but it's the Lord. God judging his people because of their apostasy. And so in verses 1 through 10, we have the Lord's wrathful conflagration. I know that's a big word. I just I had to throw in at least one big word here. The wrathful conflagration. It's just a big, the burning anger. Right? It's just a burning anger. But it's, a, it's, it's not just a, a little fire. This is a huge fire. This is a bonfire. This is massive, confu- consuming fire. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, 
Notice we have, we have a change and we go from uh, the, the third person description of what, took, what God did to her to the prophet expressing his mourning heart. And so we have a mournful, the prophet's mournful heart. Let's listen to these words. I think it's worth reading verses 11 to 17. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, my little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is gain and where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, how shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken as you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions. And they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity. But they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They, they hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We have reached it and have seen it. This is what the, the prophet feels. He feels very deeply the, the grief and the anguish that they've gone through. And he's, and he's again, just setting before them, uh, this didn't have to be. But notice the prophet's response is to, is, to, is to cry, is to weep, is to lament. But then a very important verse is found in verse 17. Because in verse 17, and again, this is one of the reasons, one of the verses that makes me really think it's Jeremiah who had the word of the Lord to these people to repent and to turn. Jehovah has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word. His word is still governing all that's taking place. His word is what was directing and brought about this great judgment. His word, which he commanded from days of old, he has thrown down without sparing and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. In essence, we see then in verses 18 and 19 what I've called the tearful lament, the daughter's tearful lament, and really it's too little too late. She now weeps over the circumstances, weeps over what she's suffering. It didn't have to be this way. If they had heeded the cries of the prophets, they had heeded Jeremiah's cry and just gone into captivity without... uh, breaking their covenants and without rejecting uh, the word from Jeremiah, then it would have been very different. But instead it led to utter devastation. And the chapter ends with the prayerful lament. Here we see the wrestling prophet. And he cries out to the Lord to look upon this and and just the words, I mean, just imagine what he's seen, what he's, what he's experienced. Should women eat their offspring? Uh, the little ones who were born healthy, should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary? The young and old lie in the streets. Virgin, my virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. God, you've done this. And you said you would. But the, the psalmist doesn't delight. The psalmist is not yet ready to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb of, of uh, Revelation 15. When he sees the devastation of judgment, he's still at the point where he's grieving over the fact that it had to be. Brings us to chapter 3 then, and the remnant of Zion's fall. And here uh, we have an afflicted man. Listen to Richard Brooks, this central and longest chapter 
kind of, of the book combines further emphasis on the awfulness of God's displeasure with rich words of consolation drawn from his unchanging character. The people are exhorted to examination and repentance, and there is another appeal for divine vengeance upon his enemies. Or Albert Barnes, in this third, Jeremiah acknowledges the chastisement is for the believer's good, and he dwells more upon the spiritual aspect of sorrow and the certainty that finally there must be the redeeming of life for God's people and vengeance for the enemies. Now again, it's very important that we recognize the, uh, the, the pronouns here. Right at the very beginning, the first pronoun is I. And throughout this entire first section, while we see he, speaking of, of Jehovah, it's he toward me. So the poet is now describing what he himself had experienced as he went through the same time of, of judgment that God brought upon the people. And so me and my and I dominate this whole section in the first 25 verses and then from 48 to the end. Again, I believe this is Jeremiah describing himself and what he went through as one of the righteous remnant. Some key points here, and I just, I'll hopefully remember to come, they're in my notes, so I hope to come back to them, but here's just some key points. The righteous remnant suffer when God brings judgment upon the nation. And that's what we see here. Jeremiah has some, uh, some incredible sufferings. And, and it's echoed from some of the things that we saw in Jeremiah's prophecy. But notice the opening verse. I am the man who has seen affliction. It doesn't mean he just stood off and watched it happen. He says, I'm the man who have experienced affliction because of the rod of his wrath. When God's rod came down upon his people and Jeremiah was desperately trying to get them to turn back. His days were like walking in darkness rather than light. Verse 2. Because of God's dealings with him, he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me. With bitterness and hardship. Dark places is where he's dwelling, as though he were one who was long dead. And as he walks along, he's got this heavy chain, verse 7, that hangs upon him of this grief and this, this trial and this tribulation. He cries out for help, but the heavens are like brass. He shuts out his prayer, tries to turn to the left or to the right, and his way is hemmed in. His paths are all crooked, but there's nowhere to get away from them. He's blocked into his way. And God is to him like a bear lying in wait, a lion in the secret places. God has made Jeremiah his archery target. He bent his bow and set a target for the arrow, set me as the target for his arrows. He made his arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. And then Jeremiah, the poet, and I'd say Jeremiah, speaks of all some of the things that he suffered at the hands of those who should have listened to him. He became a laughing stock among them. They they mocked him in song. God filled him with bitterness as the people treated him. Poorly, he was made to drink wormwood. His soul was rejected from peace, and he says, I have forgotten happiness. This is his affliction. The prophet's experience of affliction. The righteous remnant suffer when God judges, and the prophet identifies with the sins of his people. Incredible description of how Jeremiah, as it were, identifies with God's people in this particular book. In verses 18 through 25, we have the prophet's hope in affliction. In verse 18, hope is exhausted. My strength has perished, and my hope, and so has my hope from Jehovah. In verses 19 and through 21, we have hope recalled. Well, there's a sense in which he's actually recalling the grief that he's going through and, and, and <clears throat> yet seeing that God is, is still there. Remember 
my affliction and my wanderings and the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down. I remember the, the bad things and I'm weighed down. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Well, what does he recall to mind? Well, in verses 22 to 25, those classic verses of the book of Lamentations where hope is restored. Fixing his mind upon Jehovah's character of, of loving kindness, he indeed never ceases or he, he is not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jehovah is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Jehovah is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. So in the midst of all this devastation, felt personally and seen uh, on 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 a national level and even international level, in the midst of all that, he says, I focus my attention upon the character of God in particular, his mercy, his chesed, his loving kindness, his compassion, his racham, and his faithfulness. And I see this in my God and I say, this is where I find hope. No matter how devastating it is, this is where I find hope. And then the prophet's prescription for affliction, he then gives some directions As he meditates on this reality of hope, the prophet gives a prescription for affliction. How then should we live? What should we do with these wonderful facts about God and about how he treats his people? What should we do with that in the light of this terrible tragedy that's come on? Should we, should we, where where do we look? These don't seem to fit together in one sense. We've already seen that the one is a manifestation of his righteousness and the other is really the manifestation of his character as a merciful God. They are not at, at odds with one another, but they go hand in hand and they meet the, the, the writer here. He, he meditates upon the mercy of God, but then he tells the, the people of God to wait on the Lord. That's really what he's describing in verses 26 and following, waiting upon God. Humbly wait for God. So in the midst of affliction, what should the remnant do? Well, let me just scan there. You follow down uh, through the text here, and I'm just going to read down through my notes uh, what what he he tells them to do in verses uh, 25 down to verse 29. He says, waiting upon God includes seeking after God. Prayer, reading the word, but specifically with the purpose of drawing near to God and dwelling with God. Waiting upon God in verse 26 includes waiting silently, patiently for the salvation and deliverance of the Lord, not impatiently deciding on a course of action that one makes for themselves to find a way out. So many are guilty of impatience, especially in times of such devastation. And yet God says, wait, wait upon me. Waiting upon God means silently submitting to God's dealings with you, bearing under the yoke, verse 27, sitting alone and being silent, not grumbling or complaining, knowing that ultimately He is ordering all the events in your life. Put your mouth in the dust. Take this posture of humiliation, even in the face of though as though you were a dead man. Stop jumping up and running frantically about, calmly sitting, sit alone with God without grumbling. Knowing, as he writes here in verse 28b, the Lord has laid it on him. Matthew Henry says this. It is good to hope and wait. Though the difficulties that lie in the way of it seem insupportable. And while we wait to be quiet and silent, not quarreling with God, nor making ourselves weary, but but acquiescing in the divine disposals. Another man said this, murmuring begets murmuring. And we are apt to blame everyone but ourselves. The more we grumble, the farther we are away from goodness. It is only when we are silent and abstain from complaining 
that we begin to see that our deliverance must come from God. Humbly wait for God. And then hope in God, because God is a God of hope, verses 29 to 38. When he says perhaps there is hope in verse 29, he doesn't say, that's not saying, well, maybe God. No, he says, it'll come. This hope should make you calm in the face of persecution. Verse 30 sounds a little bit like Jesus' teaching, turn the other cheek. Sounds like Jesus himself, who while being reviled, did not revile himself. While they were slapping him on the face, he didn't bring down curses upon him. There is hope because, in fact, our circumstances of difficulty are temporary. They are momentary light afflictions, to use Paul's words. God does not reject forever. God will bring relief, verse 32. However difficult it seems, how difficult it gets, God remains compassionate. There is hope because he still delights in us. God does not afflict us joyfully. Necessarily, yes. But joyfully, no. God will deal with his enemies and your tormentors. Verses 34 to 36. There is hope because God is ultimately behind all these trials. Verses 37 and 38. And then verses 39 to 41, if I could summarize it, three pairs. Stop complaining, examine yourself, and worship God. Here's a prescription for living in times of affliction. And then finally, we have the, pro- the prophet's lamentation in this time of affliction. It is a time when there is a great deal of grief. And so from verses 41 to verse 66, we see this lamentation. In verses 41 to 47, he talks about sin and suffering. He talks, they confess their sin. And then they follow that up with a complaint that is expressing the pain and suffering that they're under. In verses 48 to 54, the prophet weeps because of persecution. He's really convulsed with grief in this. My eyes bring pain to my soul. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping. And then in verses 55 to 66, he offers a prayer of confidence and recalls past prayers that God has answered in hope of future deliverance and answered prayer in answer to prayer as well. You will recompense them, verse 64, O Jehovah, according to the works of your hands, you will give them hardness of heart. Well that brings us to chapter four then, and here the it's the depravity of Zion's fall, a trashed treasure. Notice verse 1, how dark the gold has become, how pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out on the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hand. Here in this fourth Fourth poem, Barnes says, Judah's sorrows are confessed to have been caused by her own sin. There's really a sense in which in this section, there's, this, there's a contrast being made. Here's what you were as my chosen and blessed people. Here's what you enjoyed, but now see where you are. See what your sin has brought upon you. See how it has brought devastation. And it has taken what was once fine gold and made it tarnished gold. It's taken your precious stones that were set apart, stones, holy, consecrated stones, and treats them like, like common uh, uh, rock for, for, the, for the street. This is his introductory uh, image. The treasure, that which was treasured, that which was precious, is being trashed. It's being cast off. And in verses 3 through 11, there's these tragic transformations. Look at verses 5 and 6. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment and no hands were turned toward her. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were ruddy in body. 
more ruddy than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. Their appearance now is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones and it is withered. You see the transformation that has taken place. But then in verse 11, the primary cause of this, Jehovah has accomplished his wrath. God has done this to them. In verses 12 to 16, we have the polluted priests. Where these priests have gone from being those who represent God to man and man to God to becoming those who are unclean and defiled in themselves. And it's God again who has dealt with them. Verse 16, in the presence of Jehovah has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. In verse 17 to 20, they were waiting for help from someplace. They were distracted, and I call it a devastating distraction because they were distracted looking for somebody to come and help rather than repenting. And he said it was wasted time because their enemies caught up with them and they were judged after all. And then the chapter ends with this little declaration to Edom. And I've changed the heading here to one size fits all. That is... What God did, he said he would do to, to Israel, he also is going to do to his, their enemies. And God said, and the people are as it were, the prophet is, as it were, saying, bring it to pass. And then chapter 5 is the one place where we don't have an acrostic, but here we have the lamentation of fallen Zion. Zion now is the one who does all the speaking here, and it's, it's all plural pronouns. First time we have a mass of plural pronouns. We, us, our, ours. And it's them crying out to God. And this is your, a, a typical lament. This is a prayer of appeal to the Lord to remember his people in the context of a further description of her calamities, says uh, Brooks. And Barnes says this is, calls it Jeremiah prays that Zion's reproach may be taken away. But this is not Jeremiah. This is the people praying. It's all we. I don't know he may be praying on their behalf, but it's we. Verses 1 to 18, their griefs are rehearsed. Remember us. All their covenant blessings are gone. They've lost the land. They've lost their posture. They've lost the place of, of, of prosperity. They're, the fathers have sinned and the iniquities have, have come in. Now, instead of being those with great names, they're, they're being led by slaves. Everybody at every strata in society has been affected. The women in Zion, the virgins in the city, the princes, the young men, the elders, the youths, the elders and the young men, they've all been affected. Nobody escaped. And they just have a joyless life. There's nothing yet left to sing. And so they, you have that Psalm 137 that Pastor Chansky has been referring to so many times when he says, no wonder they were putting their harps on the, on the willows. They're just, they're, they're broken and, and, and weeping. There is a bit of contrition expressed at the end of verse 16. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And then the whole ends with a prayer. Their complaints are lodged with God. They confess God's sovereignty, verse 19. They complain about God's senility, and I put that in quotes. That is, his forgetfulness. Why do you forget forever? Now, they really know that he hasn't forgotten, but here's this, the heart pouring out to God. They cry to God for mercy, that is, mercy in the form of restoration, verse 21. But in the end, they recognize God's righteousness. So there we've made it through the book of Lamentations in a few minutes that have left. Let me come back to some of the ethical lessons that we can learn from this book. In chapter 2 and verse 17, we read that God performed his word. Brethren, let us never forget that God is faithful to his word, all of it, both his promises and his threats of judgment. And if there's anything that, that, that Lamentations should teach us, it should teach us that the suffering, pain, and agony of God's judgment is not a pretty picture. And this is nothing compared to the imagery we see in the book of Revelation. And that's nothing compared to the reality of God's judgment when He actually comes in judgment on the last day. It is not a pretty picture. We should weep and we should shake when we read things like this. It is a grievous loss, this, the neglect of lamentations. 
Christopher Wright says it's a grievous loss because it disrespects the people of that time where, this, where their suffering has been set before us. He said it'd be like going, as it were, to Washington, D.C. and throwing drapes over all of the war monuments. No, don't neglect this. This is important that we see what, what these people suffered, and it's put for us in God's Word. Second, neglecting this book deprives the contemporary church of the language of lament. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And then thirdly, never read Lamentations. To never read Lamentations is to miss the challenge and reward of wrestling with the massive theological issues that permeate this poetry. How can a good God exist in this kind of world? That's what Jeremiah is wrestling with. That's what the people are facing. But he does. He does exist, and he is in charge of all things. There is a note in the midst of all of this, a note of hope. Again, Wright says this, That affirmation of hope is surrounded on both sides with an unremitting litany of unresolved suffering from the opening of the closing verses of the book. So there's, there is hope, but around it is this, this great difficulty. And the promises and the blessings don't necessarily take away the pain. They just give us focus in the midst of it. Lamentations adds to the biblical explanation, along with Job, of what the proper response to suffering in this world looks like. Brethren, the book of Lamentations is kind of like the book of Song of Solomon. God says, I want to tell you about marriage and what it's supposed to look like and how beautiful it can be. Here's a book about it. A play with poetry. He says, now I want to tell you what, what it means to sorrow and to suffer. And I want to tell you what it means to weep. This book teaches us how to weep. This book teaches us how to lament. How to come to God with all of our grief and all of our pain and pour it out before Him. And yet never to let go. We should never let go of the reality of who He is. His character gives direction in the midst of all of the pain and suffering. Wright describes this book as a journey through grief, not wallowing in it. There is an intentional completeness. Here is all our pain from A to Z. Lament, one man says, is a prayer. A prayer that leads to trust. A prayer, excuse me, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Another man, he said elsewhere, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and disappointments. Lament is never meant to be a cul-de-sac, he says. Complaint is never meant to be the end, an end in itself. They are not a cul-de-sac of sorrows, but bridges that lead us to God's character. Part of the grace of lament is the way that it invites us to pray boldly even when we are bruised badly. Brethren, you want to learn how to interact with others, then read Lamentations, others that are going through suffering. Maybe you've not had a lot of suffering, but you want to be able to enter into that? Jeremiah tells us how to do that. The book tells us about a God who orders all things by his sovereignty, a God who is a consuming fire and in whose hands it would be a terrible thing to fall, unprotected. God does what he does because God is who he is, is another lesson that we learn from this book. Paul Howe says, God would not be God if sin were not punished, but neither would God be God if forgiveness were not extended. Hope, brethren, rests in the character of God, so plead the character of God. Judgment rests in the character of God, so plead with God for mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. He is righteous as well as being patient. And then finally, where do we find Christ in this? Where is Christ in this book? I didn't see his name anywhere, but he's all over this book. Because you see, Christ suffers with us and for us. Jeremiah could empathize with us as a priest and a prophet. He could empathize with the people. He could identify with the people. But we have one who did more than just identify with us. He suffers with us and he suffered for us. 
He is a great high priest who entered into our condition, a great high priest who laid down his life for us, a great high priest who suffered and learned obedience that he might succor us. Where could you read of a more dark time, a time when God's wrath was more evident, when rejection from God was more patent, when desertion and injustice had reached its climax, when sin and darkness and curse came to their apex. Certainly, this is a picture of it in Lamentations, but it has nothing compared to the cross, where God poured out his wrath upon his son, when he gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice for sinners, when the son became one who was forsaken for those who forsook God. So brethren, may we read this and rejoice that the loving kindness and compassion of God and the faithfulness of God found its greatest display at the cross. Well, let's pray and ask that God would help us to learn from this book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us. Some of us who have a very upbeat Nature, some of us who've had very little suffering in our lives, need the book of Lamentations so much that we might be able to weep with those who weep. And Lord, those of us who have gone through suffering or are going through suffering, and even in our present condition as a nation, going through your judgment and suffering that comes with this coronavirus, Father, help us to lament Help us to see the pain that others are going in and rather than throw stones and be proud and delight in God's righteous judgment, Lord, help us to weep. Help your people who are weeping to look to you and to find hope in the unchanging character of your love and mercy. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from the book of Lamentations what we need. And then continue with us this day. Continue to help us as we worship you. Help Pastor Chansky as he preaches your word later. And help us that we would fix our minds upon you. We would know you better. And we would delight in you more. And we would find hope in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.